0: Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. We're very glad to have you here with us. Uh, We're going to continue very much the discussion we had last week. In fact, after recording our discussion last week, we we had another unrecorded discussion on um, how dissatisfied we were with our treatment of verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 6. We think that those uh, verses have a lot more in them perhaps, than we we're able to deal with. So we're going, to, we're going to pick up on those verses in particular and then move on to Isaiah 7, and there's heaps of fun ideas to talk about. My name's Cameron, and I'm recording from Launceston in Tasmania.
1: Yeah, g'day. Ken here, also from Launceston, and I observed that uh, not only did we have further discussion after the last recording, we've had another discussion before this one, so uh, it'll be fascinating to see where it all turns out.
2: And this is Luke uh, recording from Karimbaugh. And
3: I'm Lachlan, also recording from Kurramong.
0: Now, before we start our our discussion, there is a, some very valuable feedback, Lachlan, particularly for you, that was sent in by one of our listeners, who remembered some of your comments in previous episodes about socks and sandals. Right. Oh, appa- apparently, this year is the year of comfort, and Narelle from New South Wales has, has sent in uh, 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 some pictures of the Dior. Men spring summer twenty twenty one collection, and they are all wearing socks and sandals.
3: Ah, see, there's wisdom in twenty twenty one.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's the new fashion statement, apparently. So, well, uh,
3: I'll I'll have they to say get the jury's
2: still out on that. I'll thing. have to I'll
3: <laughs> have to pass that message on to some of my friends in Germany. Yeah. They will be most impressed.
0: Good, <laughs> good. Uh, so the two verses we want to look at, I'll just read them now. It's in Isaiah six. And it's after Isaiah has been purified and uh, he's been given his ministry. And this is it. God said, Go tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, turn and be healed. Now, our discussion last week, we sort of settled. More or less on the on the position that this perhaps is uh, some sarcasm or some uh, joking. If effectively, God's employing reverse psychology. He doesn't actually want them to miss the message He's giving. Uh, he's just He's just trying to shock them or wake them up or or you know um, acknowledge their need of Him, and He's using this rather sort of uh, you know indirect way of, of saying it uh well as as we said in the introduction, we had some discussion afterwards and Luke, uh you in particular thought perhaps we'd not quite dealt with as many ideas as those verses could contain
2: well uh, yes, um and and uh, in a couple of ways, because I think it's it's really important to be aware of the assumptions and the preconceptions and the culture, if you like that we bring. With ourselves when we when we read scripture, uh, because we we are we are all of us of a, a you know a, a well off uh, liberal Western well educated background, and that brings with it certain assumptions about what well, many things um, that we might not really be aware of. I think one of one of those assumptions is is that uh, God shouldn't be scary. Or God is, God is very nice and, and comforting and warm and, and never does anything which might hurt us. and exactly the word, safe. And it, I, it, you'll know exactly which quote I'm about to say because we've all thought of it since last week's discussion. But in, in the Narnia book, C.S. Lewis writes, he isn't a tame lion. Mm. And um, my brother-in-law, who is a pastor, actually has a saying. He likes to talk about how, um, particularly when he's in the context of witnessing to men, that we don't talk enough about the lion. The Lord is the lion and the lamb. We really like to focus on the lamb because the lamb is safe and warm and comforting and fuzzy. We don't talk about the lion, who is dangerous and scary and wild. Um, And if... This is by far not the only part of the Old Testament, and some of the New Testament as well, where you could say God is, is, if you on a direct reading, not assuming any sort of reverse psychology or sarcasm, but just taking it at his word, God is being pretty nasty here. Or at least he's, he's being very, it's almost as though he's very disappointed. He's expressing his disappointment in the people of Israel. He's telling, he's he's managing Isaiah's expectations. He's saying, yeah, you're going to go and tell them the truth and they're not going to get it. Hmm.
0: After our discussion, after our um, post-discussion discussion discussion, uh, last week, I I did some Google searching for different commentaries and I found a whole bunch of uh, online commentaries that deal with the text. And what I've discovered is that the commentaries that appear first in a Google search are not always the most nuanced. Uh, And I found... (laughs) they've all got really great domain names i'm gonna i might read some of them out and with a, with a sort of a spectrum of ideas and i've thought of a few other ideas to throw into the mix too and obviously uh, we can all share our ideas uh, but here's a commentary that that very much follows a plain reading of the text so this is the enduring bible commentary and the commentary on the two verses we read were these God told Isaiah to go and preach to a people who wouldn't respond, so that their guilt would be certain. As Trapp wrote, Isaiah would preach them to hell.
3: <laughs> well, um, uh, this this cam connects with a with a difficult train of logic that I had uh, years ago when I was um, coming out of my teens and into my early twenties, and I was pondering this idea that I'm sure you've also encountered that. When it comes to judgment, God uh, is a fair judge um, and will only hold people accountable to the revelation to which they have been exposed. And so, therefore, things like, um, you know, the fact that some of the New Testament writers don't seem to be very prominent in their denouncement of slavery, or the um, rather unfortunate racist elements of some of the reformers in Europe. Um, you know, these things can be sort of brushed aside as yes, they're not they're not to be they're not elements of those uh, heroes to to be lauded, but they can be somewhat forgiven by the fact that people have not received enough light. And the trouble with that line of logic to me is that then uh, the kindest thing we could ever do is never, ever evangelize to anybody, because the more we share the truth with them, the higher the bar God gets to use against them. And very seriously, perhaps we're preaching people to hell.
1: It's interesting because it's uh, it really is, a, a, a in a sense, an element of uh, Adventist eschatology, um, that when it matters, people will accept the Sabbath truth and the uh, prophetic gift of Ellen White. Um, uh, but until then, well... We're right and we're comfortable in knowing that we're right about those things, but it doesn't really matter for anybody else. Yeah.
0: This Bible commentary goes on. Uh, it makes the statement that this is not a very satisfying ministry for Isaiah. He would not be satisfied. <laughs> the people might not be satisfied, but God would be satisfied.
3: Right. See, there again, we touch on what Luke was saying. I find that idea troubling, Cam, uh, but I am, I am cautious with Luke's admonition not to discard it out of hand straight away.
1: I, I want to go back to some of Luke's ideas at some point, the, uh, the, the sort of the worldviews that we are imposing on the uh, construction of these texts. That, that
2: may be a podcast in and of itself, because that, that, those, those thoughts, which I now can't get out of my head whenever I read the Bible, I'm constantly asking myself, am I projecting my cultural values onto this?
1: And, and one of the things that you pointed out was the safety, um, that we, we have mm. a culture that is obsessed with safety. Uh, we remove children's playgrounds because they might be, uh, they might not be safe. Um, we don't want people climbing trees because they might fall out of them. Um, we, we live in a world where we expect safety, and suddenly we hit with a uh, a virus that doesn't comply with <laughs> our perceptions of how the world should be and our whole culture is turned completely upside down by it so safety is one of those things another one that we have and i think this is one of the other difficulties that we have with this text is the idea of individual human autonomy hmm. uh, so that you and i are in charge of our destiny uh and what we need in order to um fully um uh uh, uh Determine our our own future and our 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 end uh, is all the information. So we need information and autonomy. And here we have God saying withholding information. Well, that's something that we simply can't have in an internet saturated world. Uh, and we have God withholding information in a way that will affect. Our destiny, whether we will turn and be healed. Well, that's something we simply cannot have in a world where there's individual autonomy, um, and we're responsible for our own destinies. Uh, and I, and I wonder whether some of the difficulties that we had with these texts result from those particular worldviews and those particular views of mm-hmm. how of of humanity, uh, when they would not necessarily have been the view of the cultures to which Isaiah was writing.
2: Here's here's an interesting thought related to that directly, Ken, about the differences between the culture that we are all very familiar with and saturated in and the culture of the, 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 the times when the Bible was written. And you can see this culture in the language used and you can see the difference immediately once it's pointed out, but you don't think of it um, because it's one of these base assumptions that we have. So we always think and talk in individual terms, individual salvation. But if you look at how the Old Testament is written, it's always the salvation of the people, mm. the tribe, the group. Nobody is talking or in, in Isaiah. Mm. Nobody is talking about individual Israelites, individual Judeans. It's this people. It's this group. Yeah. And they are saved or damned together, not individually.
0: But maybe Mm. maybe God is not saying to Isaiah that there won't be individuals who, you know, maybe there won't be many who who hear hear and benefit. But as a collective group, they won't.
2: See, we we assume that when it says this people, this group, he's talking about every individual in the group. But that's not necessarily the meaning of the writer.
0: Mm. That's
2: That's our culture reading onto it, I think.
0: Do do we do we I mean before I finish with the enduring word.com Bible commentary, do we think it is possible that God sent Isaiah uh, so that the people's guilt would be certain is the key phrase that this commentary uses. In other words, ultimately there comes a time where where you must be put to the test. And God's pretty sure how it will end out. You know, sometimes I have students who haven't studied and I don't need to give them the test. I, c- I can fail them very confidently, some of them. Um, but you give them the test anyway so that their guilt is certain. Is 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 that possi- a, a valid interpretation of this text?
3: So, Cam, if I can jump in, I think it is a valid interpretation of this text. Um, I find it one that doesn't resonate with the broader picture that I find of... Of God presented by the Bible in general, but I'm I'm intrigued. The wording that you're using, uh, uh, quoting from this commentary and and exploring the idea, has reminded me of um, actually something that came up in my in my ongoing study of uh, restorative justice, which was something we recorded in a podcast episode about last quarter. Um, five points of Calvinism, which is which is particularly. Um, connected to the Reformed Christian tradition. And one of the five points of Calvinism is limited atonement. And and the key idea there is essentially um, that the, although the I'm just reading here from the Wikipedia article on limited atonement, um, although the death of Jesus Christ is sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world, it was the intention of God the Father that the atonement of Christ's death would work itself out in the elect only, uh, thereby leading them uh, to salvation. And I find this to be at odds with our Adventist picture, because um, in our Adventist mission, we very prominently uh, motivate ourselves with the idea that all can have access to the saving power of Jesus, of God through Jesus. Um, while at the same time tra- traditionally acknowledging that not all will avail themselves of such power, so there's there's some different elements of this limited atonement idea. Uh, but if you were taking that that um, standard reform tradition as your baseline, and the the idea of limited atonement would very much be that there are some whom God sees as outside His plan of of salvation, and Maybe it's better for everyone if that can be made more clearly and vividly so. In other words, remove the ambiguity. So, so perhaps there is some sense in, in, you know, make this proclamation, if you like, preach them to hell, make it so that they, they call upon themselves their own condemnation, and therefore it has removed the ambiguity and made it really clear. As I say, I, I don't find that to resonate with the broader picture of God that I see in the Bible, but there are certain elements of Christian tradition yeah. that I think would find it a very cohesive interpretation of Isaiah 6. Yeah.
0: yeah
2: I, I find it troubling as well, often for the same reasons. And yet, I, I think it is, the, it is the Occam's razor method of reading this text. It is the simplest and most direct one. What 8 to 11, what 8 to 11 implies to us is that God wants to send someone to these people because there's a chance that they might repent and he would like to prevent that. <laughs> so he sends Isaiah to make sure that doesn't happen, so that following down 11 to 13, the land will be laid waste, which is the path that history must take so that the holy seed, can grow up in okay the remains. Now he's,
1: he's doing nothing. He's doing nothing that he didn't do to fear. Poor old I person. Yeah. yeah, in Exodus no, four twenty one. I, I don't.
0: I don't think that Occam's razor is always appropriate in the sense that well, it, I, the sense I, I didn't that, say it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. Exactly. I know you didn't. But uh, we 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 believe that God. Uh, works through our tradition that God has spoken to us through Christian tradition, not just the Christian text and one of the things that Rabbi Sachs uh, one of the comments he made in his book on religious violence, people who who do horrible things in the name of religion and that sort of fundamentalist tendency within Christianity as much as Islam, as much as other religions uh, you know, more Christians have been killed by Christians than by anyone else mm. Um but one of the things that extremist groups always do is insist on a on a plain reading of the text without reference mm. to tradition. So uh, that's a worrying thought, actually, for an Adventist because we, we're we very excited about plain readings of the texts. Before before we get to... <laughs> so long Bog- as they align with our tradition. <laughs> as long as they align with our tradition. Before we um, run out of time, I'm going to leave the enduring word.com Bible commentary and read you something from... Bible studies.org, which has to sound pretty good, right? So this is the commentary on BibleStudies.org. Isaiah's uh, message in verses 9 and 10 was to be God's instrument for hiding the truth from an unreceptive people. Centuries later, Jesus' parables were to do the same. There is no understanding or true sight until the Holy Spirit of God reveals the what the words of the prophet are saying. Isaiah will bring the message as God has given him, but these people are not willing to understand and believe. Jesus spoke in parables, so the people would not accept him with their mind and be saved. God's want, God wants the heart of mankind, not his mind.
1: So the mind ought not be renewed, um, as Paul suggested, and neither should, as Paul suggested, we have the mind of Christ, because it's simply unimportant. We'll uh, take his uh, a transformed heart and leave it at that.
0: yeah but it's a it's a very odd commentary it it says it seems to infer it says jesus spoke in parables so that people would not accept him with their mind and be saved so it infers that if you did accept christ with your mind you would be saved but this is something god does not want
2: i don't (laughs) think that's what parables are for i think parables are supposed to make the meaning easier to understand (laughs) that's why you use a parable yeah yeah the, all of the parables are very, very obvious morality tales.
3: So there is well, one element, <laughs> there is one element, Cam, in which that that I think, um, chaotically constructed commentary the, the logics is very lost there. Uh, there's one element though in which it does resonate with something we we did mention in the last episode, which is the idea that sometimes. It might be a little too tempting to have a kind of head knowledge picture of it all without actually experiencing that, that transformation of life. I think this is a caution that we as Adventists need to be aware of and take on board because a lot of our um, Bible study tradition, our history of Bible study in the Adventist church has been about proving ourselves right more than it has been about um, altering our lives such that we can be a greater expression of the kingdom of God.
0: Yeah. Mm. And
3: maybe there is a caution there that that there is something genuinely important about that transformed heart, and that if you only stop at the uh, believing in the mind, you, yeah. you may have missed something.
1: I, I, it's, you're clearly right, Lachlan. It's not one or the other. Mm. Uh, and the scripture, Paul and Jesus are both very clear um, that it's the mind and the heart. And the soul, indeed. Um, however, you want to um, look at that. So, I, 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 have
2: a question for everyone before we run out of time. On, on, just a, it's a thought that I've been pondering in the last week. I don't have an answer. This is not, this is not being asked in the expectation of getting a certain response.
1: So we can take our clever hats off,
2: <laughs> <laughs> or put them on, um, whichever, whichever you think it is. So. What if verses 11, 12, and 13 describe the best
1: possible outcome? Hmm. Dinesh D'Souza raises this very issue, and it's part part of his theodicy, um, uh, that um, uh, there was no better way that things could be. Uh, For the world that that and and there's another Australian philosopher I think at the University of Melbourne who's written a very uh, dense and difficult to follow book, the name of which now escapes me, so I should never have raised it. Um, But uh, which talks about uh, the best possible worlds and the alternatives that God might have had.
3: That's a really valuable point, and I'd like to jump in there with an idea that occurred to me in relation to this passage in Isaiah 6 it's back in Genesis chapter 3 because what happens in Isaiah 6 is that lest the people see and hear and understand and transform their heart so so there's the in case they do something and something good happens god seems to be out there to prevent something good and in Genesis 3 this is after the man and the woman have eaten of the fruit and have received Um, statements of judgment and punishment from God. In verse 22, "...then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken." He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is a troubling passage that is very similar, right? What is God's desire? God's desire is that he live in perpetual communion with his creation. That's why he's created them and placed them in a garden. And now he's saying, well, hang on a minute. I'm going to have to put a flaming sword in the way just in case they do eat from the tree and and live forever, which is what I was wanting anyway. And the only reason given for it is that the people have become more like God than they were before. It's The expressions here, when you, when you break it out of its uh, children's story mold that we sort of grew up with as a simplified version, and you actually embrace the words on the page, I find these at least as troubling as Isaiah 6, Luke. Um, Uh, And it's a very similar, very similar idea. And the reason I'm jumping in with it right now is what if it is this idea that you're talking about of it being the best possible history Um, and and God can perceive that people who have been impacted by the kind of power, thirst and selfishness that is permeating humanity in this story of Genesis three, if... If he doesn't impose some limits, if he doesn't restrict things the way that he does, then the outcomes are even worse and somewhat unimaginable mm-hmm. to us. And it's it's that idea of, of things that seem bad may yet be the best possible.
2: Because I think I think there's there's something which I found really useful in being a Christian, and that is to develop some just the tiniest glimpse of understanding as to how very very complicated the world is even to the point of realizing all of the thousands millions of variables that go into making a simple prediction like what the weather's going to be tomorrow and realizing i really don't know what what the best thing is if i judge it purely on outcomes so if i but 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 this is the assumption that we make in the modern world because we have the internet we think we know everything we always judge our morality and our choices based on what the outcomes are going to be but none of us know any of the
0: outcomes hmm.
2: we know less of the outcomes now than we do than we did 1000 years ago because our world is also infinitely more complex
0: and the the idea that because we're connected in an information age we that we therefore know lots of stuff is an illusion so
2: it's we, is the most dangerous misunderstanding yeah, of our age we we, are we have so-
0: access to information
2: therefore we know a lot
0: yeah that's so. Ob- and like, we look down on people in the Dark Ages, you know, doing alchemy and and trying to turn things into gold and what. And it, it's certainly the case that many alchemists would have been able to reliably produce dramatic things like color changes and and precipitates and, and mixing things together and having truly weird stuff happening. And we look down on they say, well, they didn't really know what was happening. And while this is happening, I'm talking to you all over a smartphone that's, that's communicating with something called a radio wave thing to some tower that someone built, but I don't know how it works. And it's, uh, if I do the right incantation over the screen and touch it in the right places, I can all see your faces and talk to you. It's, I don't really know what's going on. Uh, so it's quite possible that the universe is just more complicated and that God is describing a best-case scenario Uh, I've I thought of another a few perspectives. Uh, Luke, you made a comment earlier about Christ's parables and how you thought Christ's parables were not there to make things more difficult to understand, but probably to make things clearer. It's interesting. They
2: certainly make things clearer for me. I don't know how other people
0: read them. Well, verses nine and ten are quoted by Christ in all four gospels. I think Uh, certainly the Synoptic Gospels to explain why why he chooses parables, and I think that there is a real sense there's a reason why you would tell a story that people don't understand it's because a good story doesn't have a meaning it has many meanings and Mm. a good story sticks in the back of your mind and you don't understand it at the time and you can imagine for instance in an oral culture being taught these stories and being made to memorize them and you think well why why is this so important then as you go through life you suddenly You're in some circumstance and you say, Oh, that's just like that Hmm. story. Oh, that's just like that. And you hear this in the playground. You hear kids say, Oh, that's it was just like in The Matrix. Or it was just like this, or it was just like that. So so the stories we know then become the lens we use to interpret. And there's something, you know, Christ often says, I'm gonna tell this to you now so that when it happens it'll make sense. Hmm. So this idea of God saying something is deliberately confusing is is in the new testament as well and certainly when it comes to christ's parables azar's message wasn't so much a parable but this verse is quoted in the context of parables certainly one of the advantages of a good parable is that you hear it and you don't understand what it means in fact as you go through life and have more life experience you see more and more meaning in it the meaning is made apparent to you um over time over time Uh, Which led me to another thought, which is there's one very good reason why God might tell people things that they don't understand. And that is, he might be trying to teach them something which necessarily involves telling them something that they don't yet understand. Mm.
2: It also occurred to me, Cam, as you were explaining all that, and I think it's a very, very good point and now makes me reponder whether or not I actually do understand the parables, that uh, parables are also very good for plausible deniability. (laughs) <laughs> and people can't complain that the parable is actually about them without admitting that the parable is actually about them.
1: <laughs> yes, yes.
2: <laughs> if you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Um... <laughs> yeah. The um...
1: and that was one of the things that Jesus was very good at. Yeah, was plausible <laughs> deniability. <Yeah.
3: laughs> this this is really interesting, Cam. This is a, a one little connection point through to Isaiah seven. So so let's just briefly touch on that. Um, Isaiah seven has a message through Isaiah from God to King Ahaz. And you can do a bunch of study and read back in in Chronicles and uh, other parts of the Old Testament to understand a little bit more of the context. It appears that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, um, the king of Israel, have come to wage war against Judah, against Jerusalem. And Ahaz is king of Judah. And Ahaz is disturbed by this double onslaught and he's very distressed. And in fact, it seems that he ends up making, although it's not gone into in detail in Isaiah 7, it seems that King Ahaz ends up making a sort of treaty um, with the king of Assyria, who then um, comes and, and helps protect Judah. But of course, in doing so, Judah has sort of sort of sold his soul to the devil. That's the, that's the idea of the, of the flow of the narrative here. And Isaiah comes with a message to Ahaz the king of Judah, saying you don't have to be afraid of these two kings that are out to attack you. Um, you are massively overthinking this. You're much more frightened than you need to be. Have faith in God. That's the message. And uh, one of the sort of...
2: And he tells him to ask for a sign.
3: Yeah, one of the focal points is in in Isaiah 7, uh, chapter, uh, ver- chapter 7, verses uh, 11. Uh, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or, or as high as heaven. So pretty much no boundaries on the sort of sign that might be asked. And Ahaz puts on this this sort of piety and says, Oh, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Which is something that we we hear in the mouth of Jesus, in the temptations in the wilderness, and we think of it as being a very laudable, noble response. But in this case, um, the Isaiah says, um, here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you also weary God? Uh, so it seems that it's probably a bit of false piety on the part of King Ahaz. And then, then God does give a sign in verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And That is a verse which I think many of us know well. It's my recollection that it is in Handel's Messiah. Obviously, the name Emmanuel, uh, meaning God with us, is applied to Jesus. And it's very tempting to just grab that straight away and think, oh, there we go, a messianic prophecy. Uh, Mm. But given everything that we've been talking about, I am wondering whether Isaiah 6 these verses about seeing but not perceiving and hearing but not understanding might be valuable cautions for us, uh, calls to slightly more humility when it comes to trying to grapple with the rest of the book of Isaiah and probably the Bible in general, Um, a willingness to recognize that although we can see some ideas forming, we may not understand as much as we thought. So when I read through Isaiah 7 this week, it jumped out at me that this seems to be, although it may have some application as a messianic prophecy, it seems to be quite a different focus in the story of Isaiah 7. Because it says, behold, if a, pers- if a woman conceived and bore a son now, then before that child is old enough to know the difference between good and evil, the two kings that you are so worried about will be gone. That's how much you should relax. So, the, the child called Emmanuel in Isaiah 7 seems to be a sign of immediacy. Um, and even the meaning in the, in the name uh, earlier in Isaiah 7, uh, um, Isaiah goes, gets told by God, this is in verse 3 the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you, and Shear Jeshub, your son. Now, shia Jeshub is the son of Isaiah, but that is a name which means a remnant shall return. So there's obviously stuff going on here that the, Emmanuel isn't the only child's name in this chapter that has meaning which complements and amplifies or um, underscores the message that God is trying to give to King Ahaz. So I, I find Isaiah 7 to be puzzling, to be honest, but I am, I am comforted by what we've been discussing from Isaiah 6, I think that we should actually be be willing to take it on board. Maybe we also sometimes see and hear, but don't understand quite as much as we think we do. And that's probably a, a caution that we can take on board. We can use productively
2: as an encouragement to go back to the text and, and just be open. The, the more, lot that you, you read from Isaiah 7, the more I like it. <laughs> because it illustrates precisely what I was talking about with it not knowing the future. This seems to be a a concrete example of where our knowledge of the fu- our knowledge, and I'm doing air quotes here for the listeners of the future, very easily leads us astray. Because, and, but but I should I, I should preface by saying that I really really sympathise with Ahaz in verse twelve, because I've done that. I've done exactly the same thing where I've I've said to myself, no, I'm not I'm not I'm not gonna test God for selfish purposes. Hmm. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pray for something because I want it. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bother God with this. But actually my motive is is of fear. I don't I'm afraid of what the answer from God is gonna be. I'm afraid it's gonna be something not bad for me. Because I'm never afraid that God's gonna do something bad for me. Just afraid that he's gonna do something difficult hmm. for me. Yeah. It'll be difficult or scary and unsafe. Right? So I, I feel for Ahaz. But what what happens, the story that happens in verse 7 is that there's a big threat to Israel, which is Assyria. Assyria is the actual threat. And and Isaiah is sent Sorry, there's a big threat to Judah, I, mm. should, I should be precise here, because Israel is a different country at this point. Assyria is the big threat in the future to Judah. And Isaiah is sent to King Ahaz effectively to tell him how to avoid the threat from Assyria, mm. which is not to make a devil's bargain with them for fear of these other two kings, because these other two kings aren't actually a threat. And if Ahaz listens to Isaiah, if he has, as it says, if he stands firm in his faith, as opposed to not standing firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. That that verse is very instructive. He's saying, Assyria is not going to save you. Assyria is the actual threat. You need to stand firm in your faith or you're going to fall to Assyria, which is precisely what happens because Ahaz doesn't stand firm in his faith, because he doesn't, Go to God and ask for a sign because he's afraid of what he thinks he knows is going to happen.
0: Yeah, Mm. it's very challenging. Let me. We're we're going to. We're close enough to running out of time that we should begin to wrap things up. I've got one more commentary which ties in very much with the ideas that you were saying, Luke, and then uh, a couple of Bible verses to throw in as well. So this is back a commentary back on Isaiah six verse 9 and 10 and this is uh, a commentary by Spurgeon and he says talking about Isaiah's ministry what a ministry dark with insufferable light so bright so clear that men should have willfully to harden their hearts and shut their eyes if they did not understand and receive it the phrase that I want to focus on is what a ministry dark with insufferable light in Isaiah 6, it seems really unfair that God's trying to deceive people. In Isaiah 7, what we see is that there's a lot of the key leaders at this time are desperate to be deceived. They they, they are just too frightened, really, to engage with God. And Christ picks up on these themes in the New Testament. In the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about storing up for yourselves treasure on in heaven as opposed to earth, which more generally... Don't, don't get so absorbed by the things in front of you that you're not willing to trust that God actually knows what's best for you.
1: Hmm.
0: And then, then Christ says, if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? is pulling up some of, the, some of the same imagery as Spurgeon. And in John chapter three, uh, Christ is giving a bit of a sermon and he concludes with this thought. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Uh, that's got its own, it's a very dense verse. Uh, but the idea that it is possible to be a person that just doesn't want God's message. And Christ seems to be saying, if you if you bite the bullet, if you actually accept God's message, come into the light you'll discover that it's not as bad as you mm. thought it's actually it's actually a it's like living in light instead of darkness and you imagine what would have happened if Ahaz had, had sort of taken up Isaiah on his message so I mean the challenge is uh, are we really prepared to take God's message on board if it makes us very uncomfortable
2: well I think that's a that's a really excellent point because what you're illustrating there is something which is a lot in the old and new testaments and yet we these days when we put our own modern cultural social values etc 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 onto it um we tend to overlook very easily that christianity being a christian coming into the light is nowhere nowhere described as an easy process or a comfortable process, or a safe process.
0: There's mm. another Narnia. There's another Narnia. It's *The Voyage of the Dawn Treader*, where Eustace uh, gets turned into a dragon. One of the characters gets turned mm. into a dragon, and Aslan restores him to a human. And it's a it's a very much a metaphor of rebirth and baptism. And uh, this partly involves tearing off the dragon skin. Eustace says it it hurt like bilio. Uh, but it felt wonderful. It's like picking a scab, he said. It was very uncomfortable or or piercing a boil or something, you know, something that's very uncomfortable, but sort of feels... Satisfying. Satisfying, yeah.
2: Yeah. So I I suppose I'd finish with the the thought um, that, you know, these difficult to accept, these challenging parts of the Bible, we should be very grateful for because if it was all soft and easy and comfortable i don't think i don't think it would it would have the truth in it
0: as much as it does given given that we don't have the full truth it must necessarily be the case that we should be frequently perplexed when we encounter the truth if if we mm. have still mm. things to learn
2: yeah and 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 on on a practical note as well if you ever discuss the contents of the Bible with a, a well-informed atheist or, 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 or a well-informed person of another faith, uh, usually someone who was raised a Christian but then chose something else, you can be sure that they'll bring up these topics and points <laughs> and, and a canned sort of sidestep of the issues is not gonna convince them of anything. I think, for, in my experience at least, far better to admit a lack of knowledge because mm. that at least is honest, mm. Mm.
1: to
0: mm.
1: accept the text, the hard text as a hard
0: text. Yeah. Mm. Yes, and and there are, and I think we've managed to find in our discussion, you know, some very personal challenges we ought to take out of Isaiah six and and seven. Uh, so mm. we are running out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, we've sort of neglected a little bit this week's discussion, though we did get on to Isaiah seven. Uh, we'll resume next week with a, with a following, after Isaiah 7, following the the uh, quarterly discussion. And we hope that you can be uh, with us again and listen in. We're really glad to have all, all the people we have listening to the podcast. We would, of course, have these discussions and enjoy them without doing the recording. But, but knowing that there's people uh, listening uh, makes it worth the time to record and post them online. If you have any feedback uh, or any points you would like us to raise or to discuss in future episodes uh, don't hesitate to send us an email on the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and we'd love to hear from you
1: we'll see you next week amen